0: Full disclosure, it is a timer, not the latest game that's on, right? So you can see it's actually just a timer. That's all that's up here. No worries. I think on the scale of difficulties, right, we have the rich man getting into the kingdom. Probably just under that, we have the Alabama fan wearing the Carolina hat. I think on the scale of difficulties, I'm not quite ready to call it a miracle, but it is a sign of loving one another that he will uh, wear that for you this morning. This is another set, I feel like a number of our Sundays have been this way, where we have sort of three or four discrete stories that we're working our way through, and sometimes when you first read them, you have this sense of, well, how do these fit together? And occasionally one of us will come up here and go, well, because it's in the passage they gave me, so they have to fit together. But this morning is, is one that really does, but it doesn't feel that way at first, And so it's one that as you work through it, though, and you watch the connection from one story to the next and to the next, there really is a sense that that Jesus is driving somewhere and that Luke, as he's put these particular texts together, is driving us somewhere that has a sense of commonality that if we miss what's in common, I think we'll miss part of what's driving this particular text into our hearts and shaping our lives. And so this morning, we're going to have three very uh, pretty familiar stories one about a widow who persists in, in chasing down a, a wicked judge to get justice. One about the, uh, I know I grew up with it as the publican and the sinner, right? So it's the guy who's righteous, praying about his righteousness, and the sinner saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And then we have the, uh, the disciples sort of preventing the children from coming to Jesus, and Jesus rebuking them and telling them that it's, it's being like a child that is what it is to come to the kingdom. I think what all of these stories have in common, and we'll unpack more as we go along, is that it's easy for us to have a particular focus at a moment in our lives that shapes the way we see ourselves, shapes the way that we see others, and it shapes the way that we see our relationship to God. And In each case, there's got to be something that will snap us back, pull our focus back to the basics of my relationship with God, In order for me to have a healthy and productive relationship with others, with Jesus, and in his ministry that he's called us to do. And so our task for this morning is to look at each one of these stories and ask God to guide us, to lead us, to say, where is my focus today? Where's my focus on Monday morning? Where's my focus when it's the middle of the week? Maybe where's my focus in this difficult season of life? And Lord, what would you have me to swing my attention to? How would you have me relate to you? How would you have me relate to those who are around me? Because we want to be a church ready and waiting for you. And that's actually, I love these. So we do this almost every week. That could come from one of these parables, right? Will he find faithfulness when he comes? Is one of the lines from the story we're going to read this morning. Will he find faithfulness? Will we be a church ready and waiting for him? So that's where we head this morning, is to ask God to open up and let us see how we see the world, how we see him, and how we see those who are around us. Pray with me. Father, we ask this morning that as we consider these texts, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, Lord, that we might be able to see ourselves through your eyes, that we might be able to look beyond the circumstances that are immediately around us, that we might be able to hear the voice of your Spirit as he speaks to us these words of truth. And Father, that you might prune and shape us, that we might bear fruit for you, that there might be others around us who would come to know you, Father, and see the glory of what it is that you would take our place and bear our cross. And so we ask that you would do that for us this morning. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 18, and we're beginning in verse 1. And I'm just going to read these. These are three sections, so we'll take the first one, and then we'll move on. Now, he told a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected a man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming for him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Will he find faith on earth? So at one level, this is a pretty easy story to understand. It's a little odd, though, when we make the transition to figuring out what this teaches us about God. Basics of the story are pretty clear. We have a widow, which in this culture, that means that she's an extremely vulnerable woman. So ordinarily, it would have been her husband who would have advocated for her and for the family and the justice system. So she comes without an advocate, Appears to be no other family around advocating for her. She's likely economically vulnerable as well with the loss of her husband. And she has been taken advantage of. So she comes to a judge who Jesus narrates as being unrighteous, doesn't care about God, and has no respect. Meaning here, he doesn't really fear what people think about him. So you think about sort of two leverages of power you might have against someone in a position like this. You might think, well, maybe they're at least concerned that God would judge them for this, that he, would, that he would punish him for being unjust. That doesn't work. You're thinking, well, maybe at least kind of communal shame that, you know, that we could out this guy as being an unjust judge and the community would come after him. And this guy's unaffected. He doesn't care. He has no respect for God and he has no respect for man. So there's no sort of earthly way that this widow has to bring any sort of power over him to get justice in her circumstance. And so what she chooses to do is to simply keep coming, time after time after time. And she finally wears him down to the extent that he's like, please, I will give you justice if you will just go away and leave me alone. I can't take it anymore. And he confides this to those around him, right? I I just can't take it. He says this to himself. I don't fear God. I don't fear man, but I fear this woman coming to ask me one more time. I just can't take that again. Please make her stop. And so he finally relents, and he gives her justice. And then Jesus turns the story, and he says, okay, this is what we would call a lesser to greater kind of argument. Here's the lesser case. A wicked, unjust judge is finally worn down by a persistent widow. Okay, if she can get justice from this kind of a guy, how much more likely is it that you're going to get justice from your Father in Heaven who is a just, gracious, and righteous God? It just makes sense that if we ever get justice from another human being, certainly we will get justice from God. The issue here, though, is kind of twofold. One is we have to think about the circumstance that we're in. We were just talking about the kingdom in the section before this in chapter 17 and how both Jesus and his followers would be persecuted for a season as they went after him, and they're going to have to wait for Jesus to return and for all things to be made right. So this is sort of like where we are in 2 Peter when people are starting to say, you know, maybe God isn't coming back and going to make everything right. Maybe this is all that we get. And Peter walks through, no, it's, it's like Noah. It's a long time in coming, but only long as we count it. It's short as God counts it, but he's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, that they might come to repentance. So he waits patiently before he brings justice. And so then in this section, as they're talking about being prepared by Jesus through the idea that you will be persecuted for following me, He's preparing them that there will come a time when you will question God's justice in your life. Will he take care of those who are persecuting you? Will you be found righteous and that declared before the community because you've rightly followed God? You'll begin to question whether or not, in fact, this will take place. this is not new. Remember, all through the Psalms, pick just about any page of the Psalms, you're going to find something like, how long, O Lord? And this is people waiting out of the depths, as they say, For illness to be healed, for righteousness to be upheld, for the wicked to be punished, for relief to be given. And they're always asking, how long, O Lord, will it be before you bring this to us? And Jesus reassures them and says, it will be speedy. He will not delay, but it will be in his timing. Now, if I'm writing this, that's where I stop, right? I like it ending right there. It'll be speedy, and it's sure to coming. But Jesus turns it, and he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man, when I come, will he find faith on the earth? When you're in those seasons of persecution, you kind of have a couple of options as where your focus goes. One is your focus can be on that person who is persecuting me, and when is God going to take care of them? when will that be done? Your focus can be on the illness or the thing that is ever before you and when will that go away because God can't sustain me until it does. Your focus can be on kind of looking backwards at a situation that is now resolved but it still haunts me. Or my focus can be on him and his return and waiting and hoping and looking for that. For me, this is... um, This is a close-to-home event. I went through a season in my life, as did a number of friends. We were ministering together at an institution, and a number of us were publicly slandered for a long season, and one in which we were not able to publicly declare what had been done wrong. What was interesting as I watched sort of that thing unfold over a number of years, is I watched our group who had been kind of uh, persecuted take on a number of different perspectives. Uh, One of them to this day has still never really recovered because the justice that was given to the person who went after him was never quite satisfactory. They didn't fall as hard and as fast and as certainly as they should. He was not raised back up as highly and prominently as he thought he should have been. For me, I wrestled wavering back and forth between days of I am just so bitter that nothing else in my life, can I see it? And other days when I'm, I'm I, I poured myself into Peter and Peter, and 1 Peter talks about Jesus waiting to be vindicated by the Father. Not taking that on himself, but waiting for the Father to do that. And that text is all that kept me going through that phase. Now, most days, probably nine out of 10, If you had come and said to me, are you ready for Jesus to come? I would have said, yes, I'm ready for him to fix this. I would not have said, yes, I want him to find me faithful. And he will. The difficulties come, but our choice and our focus is whether it's on the resolution or on the relationship. If I trust in the relationship, then I can trust what Jesus did to be laid in the grave and to wait to be raised from the dead, to be vindicated that he's the righteous son of God, and then to be displayed before the world, to be humiliated and humbled before he's raised and at his name every knee shall bow. Those things are still being worked out now. There's still people who don't know and don't understand who he is, and he patiently waits for that resolution because of his graciousness and his goodness. And his desire that none would perish. So Jesus begins with, you will face difficulty and you will beg God to fix this and bring justice. And he will. That is exactly who he is. But for you, the only way to flourish and to thrive in that midst of that difficulty is to be found faithful when he returns, not bitter and waiting for vengeance what Jesus inclines them towards here in their first task of will you consider who it is and where your focus is? Will your focus be on being faithful or on justice coming and someone else being judged? Now, he moves immediately out of this into a story that we're really familiar with, right? This is the, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, this is verse 9, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, we usually take this one, and the problem is in, in this time, when, when the disciples would have gotten this, this would have been fairly shocking, right? To think that it was the tax collector who would be justified and the Pharisee who's got his life together religiously who would be condemned. They're still wrestling with those kind of ideas. Jesus is really unpacking all this for the first time. So we need to do two things this morning. One is we need to think about it as they would have received it. And we're going to have to make a shift. Because most of you, like me, I've heard this story from the time I was about this high. So I know where this is headed. I know enough to relate myself to the sinner. Right? I know how to read this story. I'm supposed to be like them. And that raises some issues as we bring it into our context and think about it. So he told this to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I will continue a little bit of my story. Relatively speaking, in the circumstances that happened, I was the righteous one, right? I had not done wrong and I had been persecuted. However, I guarantee you that I treated those who persecuted me with a great deal of contempt. Because I was righteous and they were not. And so I treated them with scorn and contempt. Some of those who were around me did some very ungodly things to get back and to make their way and it was all justified because they had been treated wrongly by unrighteous men. You see, we don't have to have a disparity between actual righteousness and perceived righteousness to treat others with contempt. We all have a list of people, maybe even a list of nations or groups who are unworthy of mercy. They're unworthy of of the very forgiveness that gives me access to the Father to plead for mercy. There's some who are unworthy of my prayer that they might be turned and that they might themselves restore justice, having been convicted in their heart and repented of their sins. They're out because I'm in. And this is the very attitude that Jesus goes after in this story. You In this context, they would have been praying outside the temple area, and they would have been praying aloud at a particular time in the service. They would have done this. And you can hear him talking about this man. And Jesus echoes that language of the Pharisee when he comes back and he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. But if you exalt yourself you will be humbled it's a classic story and it's hard for us because we oftentimes see some models in the scripture of people claiming righteousness like i did in my circumstance we can go through the psalms and we can see david saying my enemies are oppressing me he can complain about saul that he's coming after me when i've done nothing wrong that's true to a point my story i had not really done anything wrong except in response, and I responded wrongly for a long time over many occasions. But when we get to the heart of the Psalms, even the Psalms don't really allow us to go there. Listen to Psalm 130. This is towards the end of the Psalter, and it's a text that kind of brings us back to where things really land. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy." Now, up till now, it sounds pretty much like a normal psalm. People crying out, and we expect now, my enemies are surrounding me. I'm in distress. Come and judge them. But what he moves to is, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh, Lord, who could stand? Father, this is as I lay out my case to you that this person is oppressing me, they are robbing from me, they've stolen from me, they're out for my life. Lord, as I lay this out, yeah, relatively speaking, I'm right in this circumstance. I didn't do anything wrong here, but if I'm going to put myself before you for inspection, if you really mark iniquities in your tally book, I'm done. I may be, quote unquote, more righteous than that one, but you're a holy God. I have no stance before you where I can appeal that you will make me right. But notice where the psalmist goes. But with you... There is forgiveness. That's what I have, is your promise and the hope of forgiveness. And so in this story, we usually treat it as someone who says, I am righteous, I don't need God, I've earned my way here. I think that is what Jesus is getting at in this circumstance. But I don't even think the Pharisee would have really said it that way. He would have made some, yes, I do the sacrifices, I know I have to confess. There would have been some sense that he understood what it took, just wasn't living it out. So we come to a text like this, and I go, well, that's not where I am. right? I would never say, I've earned enough, I've given enough, I've tithed enough. I would never tell you that I'm good on the basis of those kind of things. I know better than that. I am just like that that sinner who stands over there and says, God, be merciful to me, and I am not like that guy. You see how this works? We've got some different issues because we've been living with this for a long time. And we can flip these. And I exalt myself in my humbleness. because I know enough to be humble. I know what Jesus said. I have to be this guy. But I still have contempt for the one who isn't like me. I have contempt for the one who needs the forgiveness I'm now claiming as my badge of honor. It's not my badge. It's my scars on his back. It's my wounds in his hands. It's my blood that should have been poured out that was his. I can't claim that as a badge. I can only claim it as a token of his mercy. Because I don't deserve it. Because I am every bit like the Pharisee, whether I see myself as the sinner, the tax collector, or not. So Jesus is challenging his disciples as they work their way through this, as he takes them through these sections... You are going to face horrible injustice. You are going to be persecuted. You will doubt God's justice. You will doubt his provision. But I tell you, it is sure and it will come. If you can ever get justice out of a human judge, how much more so can you get it from your heavenly father? But when I come, will I find you waiting for me to judge them or waiting for you to hear good and faithful servant. You've been focused on me and on what I wanted from you and what I gave to you and asked you to use in your community and in the church and around the world. And you have been diligently stewarding. Think of all the, all the passages we've been through. Everything I've poured out on in you, including the hope for justice. You've been using all of that to spread the message of the kingdom and then waiting for me to return so that your focus is on me And not on your circumstances and not on those who you want to be judged. And then when you sit with yourself, you sit down and say, you know what? I do have contempt for others. There are those who are not worthy of your mercy. And then you cry out for that, Lord, help me see that. Change my focus that I might understand rightly my relationship with you and how desperately they need to be forgiven that they too might inherit the kingdom and not be judged and destroyed by the one who can condemn both the body and the soul to hell. Jesus, this is the vision that I need for my life and to move forward. It's a matter of focus, and it occurs even in circumstances where we are, quote-unquote, in the right. Not purely, not holy, not righteously, but you know what? In this situation, I was genuinely wronged by someone. I am just as much in hazard of stepping over and having contempt for them and being the righteous sinner, as I am of being the righteous Pharisee. And then we get the one. It's always the third one, right? It's always the last one you get to that you're like, well, what do I do with this? How does this fit in? Uh, So this is verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them but Jesus called to them, saying, "Let the children come to me; do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it." Now, this one's difficult because we usually get lost, kind of, in thinking about, oh, well, babies—they're cute, uh, they're adorable. Um, let's see, what is it, they like to snuggle with you, what is it about babies, right, that makes them qualified to inherit the kingdom? And we begin to kind of think about the way that we think about children and sort of the way that we kind of, we pour all of our energies into the kids, right, and we think of them as just these adorable little things. I don't think that's what's happening here in this text. Notice it opens up with even infants. Why would people have been desperate to bring infants to see Jesus, Right? They can't understand what he's teaching. They're not going to remember that they saw him where he was. This isn't anything that's going to impact them, except that the parents are hoping it might mean that they live past one or two. In this day and age, more than 50% of the children born are going to die. Natural diseases, medicine's not really available. So parents have seen him and heard stories of Jesus healing people raising people from the dead. And I think part of what they're doing here is bringing their children with some hope that Jesus might give life to them in order that their blessed little child might survive. And the disciples are standing in the middle and going, you're not worth his time. Jesus is dealing with big and important issues. People, adults, mostly men probably in the disciples' eyes, need to come And hear from Jesus and be changed. These children don't need him. They're not important yet. And Jesus rebukes them and says, no, bring them in. He has compassion for these parents, and he wants to be with them. And then he uses them to teach the disciples. Let them come to me, for to such belong the kingdom. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Well, how does a child receive the kingdom? as a child, receive anything. They cry out incessantly, not unlike the widow in the first story, and they receive everything because they can do nothing else. And it's part of why Luke is really careful to say that infants come. And then he uses a more generic term for children. But I think the idea here is that's what a baby does. All a baby knows how to do is say, "I need, I need you because you're the adult who's in the room with me. So as a child, the only way to receive the kingdom like a child is simply to cry out like the sinner did. Have mercy on me. All I know is my need, and you're the only one who can fix it. There's nothing else I can do other than to beg for you to provide what I need. That's what it means to be a child receiving the kingdom. Those are my only options. Because I can't get up and walk for myself. I cannot feed myself. I cannot clothe myself. I cannot protect myself. I have nothing to offer but my cries of save me. She says, that's how you come into the kingdom. Cries for justice? No. Are you faithful? I'm not like that guy you recognize you're a sinner? Like a child, the only thing I can do is cry for help and cry incessantly because this is all that there is. It's just me and Jesus, and I can only cry out for him, and he's the only one who can save me. Jesus is pressing them and pressing us through this word to consider whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in to come back to those basics, right? Now, let's kind of work our way back up through this, right? I receive him as a child, crying out like a baby, screaming to be fed, right? I cry out to him like that, and I come into the kingdom. Then when I encounter the Pharisee, the sinner, I don't have contempt for them. I look at them with the compassion. I look at a screaming child, I wish I could fill this for you, but I can't. But I can take you to the one who does. And I think that's part of what he's getting at with the disciples here. Don't ever stand in the way. Don't ever prejudge. Don't ever assume who does or does not need access to me. They cry out for access. You bring them, and you herd them into my presence because I'm all that there is, and I'm all that you have, and I am all that you need. So bring them in. And so it fuels us, instead of contempt, to have compassion because we recognize what we were like in that mode. I'm not a terribly dependent person, right? I I prefer to be, when I'm sick, I like to be left alone. I don't want to be checked on. Don't ask me how much I've had to drink today. I'm fine. Just leave me be. Yes, she's hanging her head in shame because she's the one who comes and wants to know if I've had enough to drink. But a few times in my life, I have been incapacitated. I have bum knees. So I had first surgery in high school, second one the year that we got married. I had a third one uh, not long before we moved to Kentucky. The last one was particularly bad. I went in the hospital to get a little tune-up on my knee and was supposed to be up and running in three days. I wake up, Bonnie says, so did the doc talk to you? Talk to me about what? And she kind of goes, white. She goes and looks, and the doc is no longer in the hospital. So she gets to break the news to me. He decided while he was in there that I needed more work than they had thought. And he knew that, you know, you're a professor kind of a guy, so you could probably sit for six weeks and be fine. So they did a surgery that required me to be non-weight-bearing for six to eight weeks. I went under thinking three days. I woke up thinking six to eight weeks. Uh, And so I spend the next six to eight weeks in my in-law's house, with my family, completely incapacitated. I can't walk anywhere. I can't move myself. I've got, you know, one of those ice contraptions on me for the first week or so, and I am just out. Uh, I'm just, I'm done. Those kind of things don't sit well with me. I don't, I don't like to be helped in those kinds of circumstances. I don't like to be incapacitated. But I have much more compassion after two or three rounds of that for people who are incapacitated now and to see them and think not that they're a bother, but gosh, I wish I could help them. And that's the kind of shift we have to have. And you know what? Just like me and my knee, when it comes to Jesus and our sins, I don't like being incapacitated there either. I don't want to be reduced to a screaming child who can only receive. I want to be the Pharisee. I want to say I can do it. I want to say at least let me add a little something. Let, let, me, like, let me just smooth off the edges before you come on in. Let me clean up the counter before you come and visit the house, right? Let, let me make sure everything's tucked away. And Jesus says, no, completely incapacitated. Your only option is to cry for help. That's all you get to do. And that's all you can do. Now I have compassion for the Pharisee beside me who thinks he's got it all together. And I ache for him inside because I know when the Son of Man does return, there will be justice. See, we cry for God to return. We beg for him to come back and restore things. That's a double-edged sword. It's both sides of the coin. Every time we pray, Lord Jesus, come, we're also inherently saying, well, Jesus, the time for mercy is over. Because when he comes, he will come with judgment and justice and finish all things. And the opportunity to reach out and say, Jesus, save me, is done. So we do pray for him to return. We do long for that. But with that same kind of patient longing that Peter talks about, not wanting any to perish yet, God desperately desiring that you would come home. And so we have compassion for those around us and we focus not on the justice that's needed to restore things for me, but on God, find me faithful when you return and I know other people who I need to cry out to you and to be found faithful as well because right now, all they'll find is justice when you return, which will be their destruction. Each one of these, Jesus is weaving together for us a story and asking us to consider how we stand in relationship to Him, how we stand in relationship to those around us, and asking us to consider again, how did you begin? How did you start with me? And how does that change the way you see yourself and those around you while you wait for justice to be given? He asks us to change our focus and to be as helpless as that day that we were first born, asking him to save us and to save those around us. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you would um, provide for us not only the sacrifice that would make us whole, but that you would also provide for us, Lord, stories like this that can grip our hearts and teach us what it means to be rightly related to you and to show us our need for compassion for those who do not know you yet. And so we pray that we might cry out and understand that it's not because of our righteousness, but it's because there is forgiveness with you that we have hope. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.